The following is a co-production of Belmont Council on Aging and the Belmont Media Center. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of the Talking News. Stories from the Belmont Citizen Herald, read by volunteers from the Beach Street Center. This week, our readers are Max, Thomas, and Claire, reporting on news and events in Belmont. And now, on with the show. Max. Thank you, Bob. State OK's 40B project adjacent to Beatrix Circle. 12 total units, three affordable. Despite misgivings with aspects of the design and massing, the state's Department of Housing and Community Development nevertheless approved a controversial 40B project to allow 12 rental units to be constructed on a half acre lot adjacent to Beatrice Circle on Belmont Hill. In an eight page letter released November 3rd, DHCD Undersecretary Jennifer Maddox said the application by 91 Beatrice Circle LLC is sufficient to show compliance with the state's criteria for the construction of much needed affordable housing. The developer has two years to seek a comprehensive permit from the Belmont Zoning Board of Appeals. The state's action brings an end to a year long process that began when the developer made up of members of the Tamposi family, purchased a 2,700 square foot single family home located off Frontage Road between Park Avenue and Pleasant Street for $1.4 million. The state's action came as a disappointment to the select board and abutting neighbors who contend the housing project was an intrusion. Quote, while there are, were some parts of the decision that I found helpful, I was disappointed, honestly, with the bulk of it, said Select Board Chair Roy Epstein, who led the town's effort to halt and amend the project by authoring two letters pointing out a myriad of problems generated by the developer's first set of designs. Epstein said the state continues to ignore the two major concerns of the town and neighbors, overall density of the two building project and allowing the development to be 10 feet from the property line. After reviewing the initial 16 unit plan for the site released in June, Epstein penned a list of concerns the town held about the design and sent it to Mass Housing. In the view of the town, the proposal was, quote, too dense and imposing for the surrounding neighborhood. The project requires a retaining wall similar in height to the Fenway Park's green monster it does not provide the necessary space to accommodate fire and police vehicles. It lacks open space and adequate parking spaces. Quote, a large number of children who will have a parking lot to play on, said Epstein. The site would increase traffic congestion. The plans did not address drainage and stormwater issues. After Epstein's initial letter, the development team, in response to discussions with mass housing in late August, reduced the number of units by four to the current dozen with three set aside as affordable for those earning 80% of the median income in greater Boston. That would be an income of $96,250 for a family of four. The state said the changes reduced the, the project's massing, improved circulation within the neighborhood, within the development, and helped with the transition from a single family neighborhood. Epstein's second letter pointed to the continued flaws in the project, did not appear to move those at Mass Housing who signed off on the project to move forward. Quote, it is now up to the Zoning Board of Appeals. 
The role of the select board, I'm afraid, has ended, he said. In its approval letter, Mass Housing did set down seven concerns that it expects the development to deal with during the ZBA process. Be in compliance with the town's stormwater and drainage issues that could affect abutting properties, respond to offsite traffic and parking concerns, fully comply with public safety standards for emergency vehicles, be ready to discuss ways of softening the project's massing and design, reduce light pollution and support pedestrian access, and work to increase open space on the site. The select board's Adam Dash said the state's extensive list of concerns is not the ringing approval for a project which points to a possible opening from mass housing to the residents. Quote, it did provide a roadmap for the Zoning Board of Appeals to focus on certain areas, which I thought is helpful, said Dash. While some residents, residents have indicated that there could be a legal challenge echoing many of the same themes as the town, history shows that unless the project is significantly flawed, it's unlikely an individual suit will be successful. Epstein said after this experience, town meeting needs to give more thought to the future of affordable housing developments because 91 Beatrice will not, will not be the likely the final multiple unit development in Belmont. Quote, we need to put, create more affordable housing on our terms so that people don't come and put it in on their terms, he said. And now over to Thomas. Thank you, Max. As COVID-19 rages, millennials make up a growing share of the sandwich generation caring for kids and parents. Paul Davidson, USA Today. Cooper Holmes' life is a whirlwind of family responsibilities. At 36, he takes care of his three-year-old daughter while his wife works as a full-time teacher and helps support his 76-year-old mother who has health issues. Holmes, who lives in Delta, Colorado, spends four hours a day running his mother's 50-sheep farm with his daughter in tow. And since the pandemic began, he has handled her grocery shopping and other errands. He also contributes about $200 to help his mother pay the monthly bills. From Friday through Sunday, he works the night shift at a local grocery store stocking shelves. It can be very stressful, he says. It always feels like there's something I need to be doing. Like many other millennials, Holmes is grappling with just the latest financial woe to bedevil his generation. Millennials, age 24 to 39, graduated from college just as the Great Recession of 2007 to 2009 was upending the economy, setting back their careers and salaries. They took on hundreds of billions of dollars in student debt. And now, as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, they're suddenly becoming the largest contingent of the, quote, sandwich generation, the cohort of adults providing financial and other support to both children and elderly parents. Millennials make up 39% of the sandwich generation, according to a survey of 1,000 adults conducted by Morning Consult for New York Life in late July and early August. That's about the same as Generation X, age 40 to 55, with millennials possibly poised to overtake that older group within the next couple of years, according to New York Life, which provided the survey results exclusively to USA Today. Five years ago, 
Millennials made up about a quarter of all family caregivers, according to an AARP study cited by New York Life. For years, the sandwich generation has featured middle-aged Americans, in other words, Gen Xers and baby boomers. With the oldest millennials turning 40 next year, that group already has started to age into the financially crunched predicament as their boomer parents reach their 60s and 70s. The pandemic, however, has tipped more millennials into a juggling act of caregiving and at younger ages. Quote, the sandwich generation is becoming increasingly young, says Jeff Begliotti, vice president and head of long-term care solutions for New York Life. We think generally the situation with COVID has accelerated the trend. 40% of millennials are more likely to be caring for an elderly parent during a health crisis, compared with 34% of Gen Xers and 13% of boomers, according to the survey. As a result, Agliotti says, quote, it has continued to financially squeeze the millennial generation, end quote. Some millennials are caring for parents who contracted COVID-19 while others are doing their grocery shopping and running other errands to ensure they remain COVID-free, Eliotti says. Those responsibilities are likely to continue even after a vaccine is available, presumably next year, and the outbreak has faded. 90% of the adults surveyed expect to provide financial, housing, or caregiving support beyond the pandemic. The outbreak is taking a greater financial toll on millennials and other age groups, the New York Life study says, noting the group is also saving for a house purchase or a child's education. 54% of all those surveyed say they're spending more each month to care for others in the health crisis, with 23% spending an additional $200 monthly. Nearly 70% of survey respondents are paying for the extra expenses out of their own budgets. 40% are contributing less to savings, 30% are setting aside less for their retirement, 27% are working more hours, 27% are drawing from emergency savings, and 18% are delaying paying other bills. And it's not just about money. As a result of the pandemic and caregiving duties, 43% of sandwich generation members are spending less time on rest and relaxation, 39% are getting less sleep, and 37% are exercising less, the survey suggests. As a result of the financial burden, Holmes and his wife are contributing less to their savings, eating out twice a month down from their previous weekly ritual, and scaling back on the painting and other classes they take at a local community college. I don't see myself doing this for five more years, says Holmes, who eventually wants to rise through the managerial ranks at the grocery store. And now over to Claire. Thank you, Thomas. Old World Craftsmanship in Doers at Garrity Signs. Stephen Garrity has created over 4,000 signs which are distributed across the country by John Coles. Mark Twain said, find a job you enjoy doing and you will never have to work a day in your life. Not everyone is fortunate enough to find a job they love so much. It 
that it doesn't feel like work. But 50 years ago, while on a Cape Cod vacation, one Belmontonian found his passion and never looked back. It was a summer of love, 1969 style, a special time when great creative and cosmic forces seemed to be in alignment. Stephen Garrity was driving through Sandwich when his wife, Susanna, asked him to stop at the wood carving shop of Paul White. Well known for his hand carved eagles, Paul White introduced Garrity to the craft. It was like a light bulb went off, said Garrity. I fell in love with wood carving. Coming home to Belmont, Garrity set up shop in his garage and immersed himself in the age old craft of mallet and chisel. He began with Ponderosa Pine and carved a two by four foot sign for his brother's real estate business. As his passion for his hobby grew, so did his skills and Garrity's reputation for quality craftsmanship spread. In just a few short years, the Boston College graduate was contemplating quitting his steady job in financial services to pursue sign making full time. Then in 1972, Garrity won the contract to create what would become a Boston landmark, restaurateur Anthony Athanasius was interviewing craftsmen to create something special for his then 10-year-old seaport restaurant. The sign for Anthony's Pier 4 restaurant weighed 2,000 pounds, said Garrity. At the time, it was the biggest sign and largest project he had delivered, taking six months to complete. The enormous sign endured until Anthony's closed in 2013. All of Garrity's work is done by hand. With the exception of the electric lights, the shop could as easily belong to the 18th century. Mallets and chisels of every type and size abound. Garrity is an artist, able to birth beauty from the wood as a painter brings life to a blank canvas. I could always draw, said Garrity. It has to be perfect, he said, indicating his Huntington Wood masterpiece. That pheasant has the right number of feathers. The number of wood carvers has declined over the years with much of the work now done by computer driven routers. However, there are national associations and regular competitions. Garrity has created over 4,000 signs, which are distributed across the United States. Clients have included the Belmont Public Library, Harvard University, Raytheon, the US Army, and a large assortment of restaurants and businesses. I feel blessed that I love my life's work, said Garrity. Susanna helps me a lot with the design and the gold inlay. Garrity has no plans to retire. Fortunately, he has a 15-year-old grandson that shows an early talent for the craft. I hope he stays with it. He's very good, said Garrity. Now over to Max. Thank you, Claire. Teens glued to screens in COVID pandemic need sleep and reality checks, experts say, by Eleanor Aspergren. Young people have turned to digital devices to fill holes left by the COVID-19 pandemic, a practice that elevates depression, anxiety, and hopelessness 
suggests a California study released Wednesday. Quote, our kids weren't built to live their lives chained to supercomputers, unquote, said Jennifer Siebel Newsom, who is married to the California governor and founder of the California Partners Project, which wrote the study alongside the Child Mind Institute. COVID has really shown us how damaging this new normal is to our kids' mental health. This problem is not a new one. Even before COVID-19, 95% of teens could access a smartphone and spent multiple hours a day on a screen, according to the Pew Research Center in 2019. But in March, schools across the nation closed and shelter-in-place requirements forced many teens home. Quote, well, what many teens initially embraced as a short, unexpected school break has become an unexpected and extended trip to new territory with no return ticket, unquote, the study says. More students could be headed home soon. <clears throat> Schools want to end online classes for struggling kids, but COVID-19 cases may ruin that plan. Teens' new existence is plagued by loss, said Dr. Harold Koplowitz of the Child Mind Institute. The loss of school, the loss of social experience, the loss of academic accomplishment, the loss of extracurricular activities, the loss of freedom, unquote. The internet and electronic devices emerged as the platforms where social, ed social, educational, professional, and developmental activities take place, the study says. And though the internet is essential to staying con connected in a pandemic, Koplowitz said people are using it, quote, as a way to numb themselves, unquote. Problems arise when they can't stop. With everything uprooted, you can't really blame teens for their media use, Newsom said but several solutions to teens' destructive use of technologies do exist. Some of those tips for parents and teens include, keep moving and prioritize sleep. It is important to keep healthy sleep and exercise habits, Newsom said. Getting enough sleep improves students' abilities to concentrate, maintain a good mood and healthy weight, and even improves the quality of a person's skin, the study says. Kids cannot go to bed with devices in their room, Newsom said. What's more, sticking to a bedtime routine that is screen-free can allow the brain to fully recharge. As for exercise, the study recommends engaging in an hour of moderate physical activity every day to keep the mind and body feeling good. If you can't get outside, turn on the music and dance or do some yoga, Newsom said. Mindful reality checks. Living in a pandemic means that we are all socializing on screens, the study acknowledges. But teens should take time to consider how they feel and what they think when they're using tech. Quote, if you notice that you actually feel worse after you post, know that this is common and look for more reliable ways to improve your mood, the study says. Newsom advocated for having that internal conversation even before using tech to ensure that a person is, quote, emotionally conscious, unquote, before looking at a screen. Why are you picking it up? Are you, what are you feeling right now? Are you in an anxious state? Are you in a fearful state? Newsom said. This advice applies to parents, teens, and other adults, she added. Be a role model and empathize. The best way for parents to promote healthy screen use is to model it themselves, Newsom said and to be honest and open about their challenges with overusing tech. Quote, I'm learning myself that when I'm online delegating something or ordering something, whether it's food 
or making a doctor's appointment, that I have to communicate what I'm doing to the kids so they don't think I'm just surfing the internet or social media, he added. The study also suggests trying to designate special screen-free times of the day or rooms of the house and stick to those rules yourself. Empathizing with the rough time teens are having during the pandemic is paramount. The best thing parents can do to help teens, quote, validate their experience in many ways is worse, that, that it's worse than the experience of older adults, Kaplowitz said. Recognize the warning signs. If you notice that you or your teen is more withdrawn than usual, is experienced severe mood swings, or has drastic changes in behavior, talk to your pediatrician, the school psychologist, or a mental health specialist, Newsom said. Crisis Text Line provides free 24-7 confidential support via text message to people in any crisis when they dial 741-741. Peer support resources are also listed at warmline.org. The Trevor Project also offers a peer support network called Trevor Space for young people ages 13 to 24. And the Trans Lifeline is a peer support service run by trans people for callers who are transgender or questioning. Survivors of sexual assault can call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800-656-HOPE-4673 or visit hotline dot rain with two ends dot org slash online and receive confidential support. Over to you, Thomas. Thank you, Max. Museums are losing millions, job losses mounting with COVID-19 case searches and new study shows by Brian Truitt. A new American Alliance of Museums study released Tuesday showed that recent COVID-19 surges are doing a number on already hurting museums. According to an October AAM survey of 850 respondents from across the USA about the continued impact of coronavirus on museums, millions of dollars are being lost, with around a third of institutions facing permanent closure, and the job loss is mounting as nearly 30% of American museums remain closed since the March lockdown. Quote, the financial state of US museums is moving from bad to worse, Laura Lott, AAM's president and CEO said in a statement, quote, those that have reopened are operating on an average of 35% of their regular attendance, a reduction that is unsustainable long-term those that did safely serve their communities this summer do not have enough revenue to offset higher costs, especially during a potential winter lockdown. Without financial help, we could see thousands of museums shutter forever, end quote. Nearly a third of museum directors surveyed confirmed either significant risk of closing permanently by next fall, or they didn't know about their survival. More than half of museums have at most six months of operating reserves, while 82% have a year or less. On average, each museum surveyed has lost $850,000 in revenue so far this year due to COVID. Respondents anticipated losing around 35% of their budgeted 2020 operating income and are predicting a loss of an additional 28% next year. 
reopened museums averaged $27,000 to get back in business, going as high as $750,000. The employment numbers are also pretty dire. More than half of responding museums have had to furlough or lay off staff members, and approximately 30% of staff are currently out of work. Positions most impacted include frontline, education, and collection staff. And now back to Claire. Thank you, Thomas. Winter blues loom for some. A COVID winter looms for those with seasonal affective disorder by Ari Swift. Winter is beginning to creep into Massachusetts. The sun is starting to set earlier and the temperature is dropping quickly. For many people, fall and winter bring lowered energy, problems with sleep and changes in weight and appetite, among other symptoms, according to the Mayo Clinic. This year brings the added challenge of isolation and COVID-19 anxiety. Seasonal affective disorder, or SAD, S-A-D, affects about 10 million Americans, with an additional 10 to 20% of Americans with the mild version of the disorder, according to Psychology Today. There is already evidence that there is more depression in this time of the pandemic, and I expect that to continue through the winter, said Dr. Richard Swartz, a senior consultant in the Adult Psychiatry Residency Training Program at McLean Hospital in Belmont. Brian Kendrick, a Boston University senior, is one of the people who is affected by SAD every year. It is a compounding of paranoia. They simply do not mix. With COVID paranoia, you are constantly paranoid of who you are interacting with, who you are talking with, Kendrick said. Then that does not go away when it turns into night. Now you have that and you are already exhausted. Dr. Schwartz recommended several remedies to help ease these feelings during the winter. Bright light therapy, medications and talk therapy exercise and staying connected with others. One of the most effective ways of avoiding depression is by having contact with other people, said Schwartz. Social contact really is very powerful preventer of depression and it's going to be challenging to do this winter, but we're finding that some way to do this is really important. Many people feel the COVID-19 pandemic has dramatically changed the way we connect with others. And Kendrick is finding this particularly difficult this year. For me, friendship and connection is very physical in terms of quality time and physical touch, Kendrick said. I like physically feeling people's energy and you can't get that through a computer screen. Kendrick is trying to find new ways to stay in touch with those closest to him. He's using Zoom calls and arranged socially distanced meetups. Another simple suggestion for an antidote to darkness and isolation is to walk through a large nursery for plants and flowers. It is filled with light and sweet smelling flowers. Buy a small plant or flower for a neighbor who lives alone. You will both feel better and it's a good way to be thankful. 
now over to Max. Thank you, Claire. More rats at home? Nearly one in four Michigan houses report an increase since pandemic start by Georgia Kovanis. Can it get any more 2020 than this? Now we have rats. Nearly one in four Michigan households are reporting an increase in rats and mice since the coronavirus pandemic began, according to a survey by a pest management company. There are some reasons for this. The US Centers for, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention acknowledging the nation's pandemic related rodent problem points out that restaurants have reduced service which means fewer food scraps are ending up in the dumpsters on which rats and mice feed. According, and according to uh, Smith's Pest Management, a California service that commissioned the study via Google surveys, our houses are the perfect substitute. We're home more, which means we're producing more garbage. Nationwide, one in three households report a notable increase in garbage accumulation, the Smith survey said. We're also cleaning less with one in four households across the nation reporting that they're not cleaning as thoroughly as they did prior to the pandemic. Zachary Smith, president of Smith's Pest Control and Service offered this advice in a prepared statement. If you have stored food products, make sure you keep the storage area clean and sanitized to prevent pest contamination. Clean up spills immediately and make sure you stay up to date with the trash removal schedule so you don't have an overflow on your hands. In addition, the CDC recommends taking preventative actions to reduce your home's attractiveness to rats. That includes sealing rodent-friendly entrance points to your home, removing keeping trash in tightly covered cans or bins, and not leaving pet or bird food in the yard. Other states have seen increases in rats and mice that top Michigan's 24% increase. Among those, Ohio households are experiencing a 32% increase in rats and mice. Rat, mice and rats are up 35% in New York and 50% in South Dakota and New Hampshire. Over to you, Thomas. Thank you, Max. The sun has set on 2020 in this Alaskan town. Polar night brings 66 days of near darkness in America's northernmost town by Jessica Flores. The sun set at 1.30 p.m. Wednesday in the United States northernmost town, and it won't rise again for another 66 days in Utqiagvik, Alaska. By then, it'll be 2021. Joe Biden will be president, and the U.S. may have an available COVID-19 vaccine. But for this Alaskan town, the polar night is a normal phenomenon that happens every year. The National Weather Service in Fairbanks on Wednesday said the sun will not rise again until January 23rd in Utqiagvik, formerly known as Barrow. Some Alaskans prepare by taking vitamin D supplements or relying on a happy light, which mimics daylight, Carson Frank, an associate at the University of Alaska Museum of the North, told USA Today on Wednesday during a phone interview. The polar night happens each winter because of the tilt of the Earth's axis and none of the sun's disk is visible above the horizon at all. It only happens within the polar circles, according to timeanddate.com. But there won't be complete darkness, according to meteorologist Danielle Banks of the Weather Channel. Quote, 
There are a few hours each day with enough light to see, but the folks who live here have technically seen their last sunset until 2021, she said. And now back to Claire. Thank you, Thomas. Furniture Fair Demos Options for Middle and High School by Joanna K. Juvelis. Students and staff of Belmont High School and the Chenery Middle School had the opportunity to try out furniture options for the new grade 7 through 12 at the Belmont Middle and High School at a furniture fair for in November 4th and November 5th. A tent was set up in the BHS parking lot with options selected by the project architect, Perkins and Wills. Designers for seven different areas of the new building, including the media room, cafeteria, science lab, market space, administrative offices, and special education classrooms. Participants had the opportunity to rate the furniture options by scanning QR codes for each area with their mobile devices. The results of the surveys for each of the spaces will be reviewed with the BMHS Building Committee at the November 25th meeting. Final selections will be made at the December 18th BMHS Building Committee meeting. Bidding will occur shortly after the new year. Now, back to Bob. We hope you enjoyed this week's Talking News. You can listen and watch Talking News on Mondays and Tuesdays at 4.30 p.m. on Channel 9 on Comcast and Channel 29 on Verizon. You can also listen to the Talking News anytime on the BMC Podcast Network on iTunes or at belmontmedia.org forward slash podcasts. Tune in next week. I'm Bob Fellerman.